So we are looking at the passion of Jesus Christ. Uh, don't get uh, all uncomfortable with that word. It simply means the sufferings of Jesus Christ, which started uh, when he descended into the Garden of Gethsemane and is going to reach a climax on the cross. One of our greatest uh, composers, J.S. Bach, has two great pieces uh, called St. Matthew Passion and St. John Passion. So this is what we are considering, the sufferings of Jesus Christ. And one advantage or disadvantage of taking a series like we're doing, even an evangelistic one, is that we're forced to consider some passages that we wouldn't normally uh, look at. And this morning, uh, the trial of Jesus Christ is something I've never preached on uh, before, and I wouldn't have chosen to preach on it unless uh, we were going through uh, this gospel as we've been doing. And I know we've not been looking at all the verses in Mark, but the trial is so central that it is found in all four Gospels. And all I want to do to begin this morning is just put together what the four Gospels say as to the chronology of what happened. Uh, what, what were the sequence of events? Jesus has been arrested. Uh, the disciples have fled. Two disciples follow from a distance. Uh, one, Simon Peter, and the other is probably Mark. He doesn't mention himself by name, but we had a mention of somebody uh, that's fled naked. Jesus is led first. It's the middle of the night. So even though it's Thursday night, in Jewish uh, terms, it's already Friday because the Jewish day starts at sundown. So it's the middle of the night, and Jesus is first taken, according to John, to the house of Annas, the former high priest. And he uh, still has great influence. So he has a pre-trial hearing, if you want, uh, before Annas. And then, still unofficial, he's taken to the house of the present high priest, Caiaphas, who incidentally was Annas's son-in-law. So isn't there a bit of conflict of interest there? And during this time, the whole of the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, come together, but it's unofficial. And they basically decide to put him to death there. But it's not an official trial. They're not allowed to hold uh, a trial during the night, the Sanhedrin, they have to wait till the morning. That's why I read from chapter 15, verse 1. So immediately when the morning arrives, the Sanhedrin gathers in an official capacity, basically to declare judgment on Jesus. They'd already made up their minds, which wasn't right. Uh, but the official gathering is only when the sun has risen. And it's when Jesus is in Caiaphas's house that Peter uh, is in the courtyard warming himself. It was a cold night and he's warming himself by the fire. And that's when Peter uh, denies Jesus three times. God willing, we'll look at that next Sunday morning. Also, 
it was the Roman occupation of Palestine. So the Jews weren't allowed to put a man to death. So Jesus, after this religious trial, is handed over to the Romans uh, to be tried by Pontius Pilate. And he is the one who has the authority uh, to uh, sentence him to death. Uh, so all we need to do this morning is look at this religious trial. It's not an easy task. Uh, and I only got two things to say. The first is the horrible part, and then uh, we'll get to the gospel, the good news. So can you bear with me as we look first at the biggest miscarriage of justice this world has ever seen? This, this is not going to be pleasant now, looking at some of the details here. Uh, some of you may have watched on Netflix The Making of a Murderer, uh, where uh, you have a documentary about a man, uh, Stephen Avery, uh, who seems innocent and probably is, and he's been holed up in a prison. A miscarriage of justice. Uh, you boil within when you realise uh, that this man is in prison when he should be free. That pales into insignificance compared to what we've got here. An innocent man being condemned. It's wrong. Um, if you enjoy reading history, uh, some of the worst mock trials ever uh, in the history of the world occurred uh, in Soviet uh, Russia under Joseph Stalin. Hundreds of thousands of people were sent to their death and they were innocent. A miscarriage of justice. I think there's something worse about this trial because of its religious nature. Uh, sometimes the worst things that have happened in the world have been done in the name of religion. Isn't, isn't that right? Maybe you're here this morning and you're put off Christianity uh, because you equate Christianity uh, with certain horrible things that have happened over the centuries. That's not real Christianity. What we have here is real Christianity, as we'll see in the second point. Now, let's look at first the hypocrisy here. This is nauseating. It makes you want to be sick, you know. Um, all of this so-called just trial... Uh, under religious guise, whereas what's really happening is a miscarriage of justice on a massive scale. Uh, let's look at some of the details here. Uh, the Sanhedrin, this council of the Jewish leaders, was made up of 70 elders. Uh, if you know your Bibles, does that remind you of something? 70 elders were first chosen under Moses' leadership. And the role of these 70 elders was to mete out God's justice. The God of Mount Sinai. The God who gave the Ten Commandments. The God who is of purer eyes than he can behold iniquity. Jehovah God. It's in that name that the Sanhedrin, presided by the high priest, is supposed 
to mete out justice. Isn't it nauseating when they're speaking on behalf of such a holy God that there is gross injustice going on? They're trying to honour the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law is completely, completely uh, forgotten. Uh, the chapter, uh, chapter 14 started off uh, with the words, after two days it was the feast of Passover, and the chief priests and the scribes, the Sanhedrin, sought how they might take Jesus by trickery and put him to death. This is not innocent until proven guilty. This is trying to find anything that they can nail on an innocent man so that they can get him out of the way. And to do that in the name of the just and the righteous God is nauseating. That's why it's horrible, isn't it? And then if you look at verse 55 uh, during this show trial, uh, we're told this is not the official Sanhedrin in the morning. This is the unofficial gathering in Caiaphas's house. Now the chief priests and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death. They want an appearance of legitimacy, but really what's going on is completely unlawful, going right against uh, the commandments of God, which is summed up, you shall love your enemy. You shall love your neighbour, as yourself. Uh, the laws of Moses and uh, the additional laws of the Sanhedrin had safeguards in place to make sure uh, that justice was done. And one of the rules was you had to have two or more witnesses. They kept the letter of that, so they had several witnesses, but the problem was they were false witnesses. Isn't that terrible? Keeping the letter, having the more than two witnesses but they were wrong and then uh, they were quoting Jesus out of context uh, there is references in there to what Jesus said about destroying the temple verse 58 we heard him say I will destroy this temple made with hands he was referring to his own body Jesus Christ is the dwelling place of God. But these false witnesses are telling uh, these authorities that Jesus was a terrorist and he was going to destroy the physical temple. He wasn't going to do anything of the sort. They're falsely accusing him by quoting him out of context. Horrible. Doesn't it make you feel sick? Religious hypocrisy. So many people have been put off Christianity because they equate it with hypocrisy. Listen, that's not the real thing. That's not the real thing. And then there's something else here. It's not just the hypocrisy. It's the abuse that Jesus suffered. Think of him, the innocent, harmless, undefiled one. And how do they treat him? Uh, he is... Uh, treated with verbal abuse, uh, he is uh, treated with physical abuse. Uh, if you look at what happens towards the end, uh, before they let him go, uh, they play games with him. Uh, let me just read again uh, the relevant verses. I know it's horrible, but uh, we need to be shocked sometimes. Uh, they 
began to spit on him. Verse 65, again in the Old Testament, to spit on somebody was the worst insult you could show a person. It basically said, you're unclean, you're nobody in my sight. And that's how these religious leaders who were treating Jesus Christ, and they blindfolded him, and they beat him physically, and they began to say to him, prophesy. And the officers struck him with the palms of their hands. You know, the word Caiaphas, it actually means, in the original, inquisitor. Inquisitor. <laughs> this makes the Spanish Inquisition, which was cruel, again pale into insignificance. Sinclair Ferguson, he says this. This passage tells us what religious men may become when they have rejected Jesus Christ. Beasts of passion. Who would believe these gentlemen scholars could be so vitriolic? Many a follower of Christ has been treated in the same way. Uh, how many of you can remember um, coming out of the denomination? There, there are some very good men in the denomination the denomination we came out of, and there were good men in the denomination when we came out of it. But there were also liberals, uh, which isn't a political term when we're using it here. It refers to men who did not believe the Bible, who did not believe in the gospel. And those of you who were around at the time will agree with what I'm about to say. Those liberals were vitriolic in their hatred of evangelicals, weren't they? Uh, I never knew uh, the liberals that well, but I remember uh, one liberal minister coming to visit us as a family uh, to sympathize with us, and he heard I was studying in an evangelical Bible college. And once he'd got the sympathy part out of the way, he just laid into me in, in front of my parents uh, and mocked me for believing in the Bible, the anger there against gospel preachers. Um, I remember once in Moldova, um, some of our young men were witnessing uh, to um, an Orthodox priest uh, in uh, one of the villages. And uh, th this, this man came out angrily chasing them. A religious man. I say... Even if it's not violence in the physical sense, there can be a deep-seated hatred of a religious sort towards you if you just believe the gospel of grace. Uh, I'm frightened by it, you know. Uh, J.C. Ryle uh, says this, uh, Thou who was rich, that's who Jesus Christ is. All for our sakes became poor. Folly is set in great dignity. And the rich sit in a low place. Jesus Christ. Who can imagine no more complete illustration of these words than here. When we see the Son of God in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge around as a malefactor, the worst of criminals, before the chief priests and elders and scribes. 
we see the heads of the Jewish nation combining together to kill their own Messiah. That's what makes this so horrible. They're trying to kill God. And in a way, that's what makes sin, sin. Uh, we may not be quite like the Sanhedrin, but we may still be respectable sinners. I know there is coarse sin, that is outrageous sin, which we are probably not guilty of, otherwise we wouldn't be in church, would we? But there is such a thing as heart sin, respectable sin, which basically says no thank you to Jesus Christ. We say to our creator, we the creatures, I don't want this man to rule over me. That's the essence of sin, trying to do away with God, the most religious people who ever lived. The Sanhedrin, when they came face to face with Jesus Christ, the Son of God incarnate, they didn't embrace him. They wanted to kill him. That's the worst sin, isn't it? What's our attitude to Jesus Christ this morning? I'm coming to the encouraging bit, don't worry. Do we say, thank God, he's a friend of sinners? Or are we like the Sanhedrin? Is there something in our hearts that hates him because he condemns us, because he shows us up? for what we're really like. Uh, J.C. Ryle again, lies and false reports are among Satan's choicest weapons. When he can't deter us from serving Christ, he causes us to be harassed and he makes our Christianity uncomfortable. Let's follow the same example as Jesus. If you are a believer, at some point, you will suffer in the same way. Maybe you won't have physical beatings. But what's the saying? Sticks and stones may hurt my bones, may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. That's not true, is it? Maybe at school, you're the only Christian, and they cold shoulder you. Or when you go to university, you are making a stand for Jesus Christ. And the... the they're basically uh, maligning you with words or in the workplace or in the family. We're following the same path as our master. Remember what he said? Uh, when Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, when he started in Sandfields, he had liberal people against him. And his wife, uh, she sent him verses uh, we can text one another, can't we, with verses to encourage one another? Well, Mrs. Lloyd-Jones didn't have a mobile phone. <laughs> I think she put up this verse for her husband, and it was the words of Jesus. Blessed are you, happy are you, when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you for my sake. For my sake. That's the horrible part. The biggest miscarriage of justice ever seen. Now, this is what I'm excited to preach on this morning. My second point, it's a verse from the Old Testament. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? We've seen man, if you like, mankind, at its most religious, yet the most unjust trial ever. How different 
our God is like. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? This is Christianity now, not uh, the thing, the political outward thing that often bears its name. We have come across, haven't we, in the book of Revelation, Jesus Christ referring to himself as the faithful and the true witness. Jesus Christ, we sang about him in that uh, semi-carol, if I can call it, thou who was rich beyond all splendor. We don't quite call it a carol, but oh, what a wonderful description of our Saviour. Thou who art God, art God beyond all praising, all for love's sake becamest man, the only innocent human being to have ever walked the face of this earth. Harmless, spotless, undefiled, the God-man. The machinations of the religious authorities, the ugliness of their hypocrisy, in contrast to the beauty of the Son of God. Don't you love him? What was Jesus' attitude? He was silent. Didn't say a word. You know, when somebody's silent in a trial, it can mean one of two things, can't it? It can either mean they're innocent or it can mean they're guilty. What is it here? Is Jesus guilty of the charges or is he innocent? Do you know what? This is the gospel now, and you're not going to get your head around this. He's both. He's innocent because here is the only perfect human being. Even when a person is put on trial, uh, the whole purpose of the trial is to decide whether they are guilty of the crimes they've been charged with. So whoever that person is, even if they're acquitted because they are innocent, as a human being, they have still got sin in them and they are not completely innocent of everything. They are only found innocent of the things they've been charged with. And that's where human justice is necessary. But Jesus Christ, my friends, wasn't just innocent of the things charged with here. He, he was completely innocent. Not only was he innocent in terms of not committing any outward wrongdoing. He was even innocent in terms of the intents of his heart. None of us are in that position. Even when we have an impeccable record, we can still sin in our heart. But Jesus Christ never one moment sinned. And you know what? It had to be proved that he was the spotless lamb of God. He had to stand publicly as the innocent victim. Otherwise, he couldn't be the saviour, the innocent, dying for the guilty. God is displaying before our eyes here his sacrifice for our sins. And we are seeing with our eyes that he's spotless. There are prophecies here, you know, being fulfilled. Uh, even when they blindfolded Jesus and spat on him and hit him and made fun of him and said, who is prophesying now? They didn't know they were fulfilling the prophecies of Isaiah. Did you know that? We won't get to hear Handel's Messiah being performed this year, will we? That's a great Christmas tradition. 
if you get a full version of the Messiah, you'll have this chorus. I gave my back. These are the words of Isaiah to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. Here is my innocent son, God the Father is saying. Look at him. There is no sin in him, even when he is maligned. And then, of course, Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. His innocence. But his silence here also is a silence of guilt. Hang on, you say. Pastor, you've just talked for 20 minutes about a miscarriage of justice, about the only innocent human being, perfect, undefiled, spotless. Yes. Now, this is the paradox of the gospel. He's also standing guilty. Do you remember what I said about the Sanhedrin? They represented God's justice from the Old Testament. So even though the Sanhedrin had become twisted and was not doing justice here, in God's plan, what we've got here is the innocent Lamb of God standing trial, not just before these wicked men, but he's actually standing trial before God. Now, th this is the gospel. Uh, one of my favorite commentators uh, on the sufferings of Jesus Christ is the German Krumacher, 19th century, early 20th century. And this is how he puts it. Before the supreme tribunal, the savior of mankind stands bound. The Lord does not stand at the bar as a holy one, but as the representative of sinners, you and me, our catalogue of crimes is displayed before him as if they were his very own. Our sins are charged on him. He stood there in our place. Had he not appeared, the position would have been ours. Do you hear the gospel in the silence? Sometimes silence is the most eloquent, isn't it? Do you hear the gospel in Jesus' silence? Not just the innocent one, but standing guilty, even though he in himself is innocent. He's standing there as our representative. Even though he has never committed sin, he now is taking upon himself the catalogue of your sins and mine, and he is being judged not just by a human court, but by his father himself, the judge of all the earth. That's the gospel. Peter was in the courtyard. I think Peter heard some of these charges. And Peter would have heard the silences. It's interesting that Peter later on, when he wrote his letter, remembered this. He heard the gospel here, I think. And he wrote about Jesus, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile again. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. Have you heard? 
can you hear in the silence of Jesus the best news for any sinner? Uh, you know, this, this is a happy point. Um, I keep on quoting these words because it's one of my favorite hymns. It's got the paradox nailed. Guilty. Can you say this? The, the religious leaders couldn't say it. They were as proud as anything. But can you say this? Guilty, vile, and helpless we. Spotless, Lamb of God is he. Full atonement? Did he really pay the debts for my sin? Can it be? Hallelujah. What a saviour. There's no word in the English language like hallelujah, is there? When you say it, you feel liberated. But is there a little hallelujah in your heart when you realise bearing shame and scoffing, rude? Why? Because it was in my place, condemned, he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. What a saviour. Hath not the Father put to grief his spotless son for me. And will the righteous judge of men condemn me for that debt of sin which, Lord, was charged on thee? Hallelujah. You can, this morning, walk out of this place no longer under condemnation because Jesus has borne the punishment in your place. There's only two possibilities here this morning. Either we are going to have to bear the punishments for our sins, or Jesus has taken the punishments. God must punish sin. Uh, there is no such thing as God winking at sin. The grace of God doesn't do away with his justice. It honors his justice. So either you are still carrying your load of sin, or you've transferred it to Jesus Christ. And you know what happens when you transfer it to Jesus Christ? There's a hallelujah in your heart. Um, have you seen it? Um, there was a discussion, wasn't there, in student circles in the 50s? Uh, and a student was asking Elwyn Davis a question about the gospel. He just didn't get it. So he started his question, excuse me, Mr. Davis. This was the 1950s, so students were very respectable. Excuse me, Mr. Davis. And then he didn't get to the end of his question because he suddenly saw it. Hallelujah. Excuse me, Mr. Davis, hallelujah. It's the title of a book. Finally, Jesus did answer. <laughs> he said, I am, I am, I am the Messiah. And one day, you are now standing in judgment of me, and it's a false judgment you are making. But one day, I will come to this world. I will come back, and I won't come as saviour. I will come as judge, and you will then be judged. My friend, where are you going to be on that day? We're going to look at that tonight in Revelation, the second coming of Jesus Christ. But where are you going to stand on that day? Are you still going to be judged because you're still carrying your own sins? Or has Jesus Christ taken them on your behalf? Hallelujah. Now, let me end uh, by just, uh, I, I got, got to ask this question. Uh, are, are you trusting in Jesus Christ completely? That, that's what a Christian is. That's how you become a Christian. Uh, how can I explain faith in Jesus Christ? It's a turning. We call that repentance. 
We turn from sin. We hate the sin that made him suffer so. And we turn and we turn with our sin, as it were. And we don't carry it anymore upon ourselves. We just throw it upon Jesus Christ. Have you done that? If you do that, you will have a hallelujah in your heart. Because you're no longer bearing, bearing the load. And then if you are, if you are trusting Jesus Christ, you're following in his footsteps, right? How many years has it been since you trusted him? Some of you have been a long time following, some of you more recently. I thought the Christian life was a bed of roses for the first few months. I soon realized it wasn't to last. We're following the same path as Jesus. And what do you do when suffering comes? You do the same as he did. I've got to read this as I come to a conclusion. Have you heard of Corrie Ten Boom? Uh, she uh, suffered greatly for Jesus Christ in the Second World War under the Nazis. And this was Friday morning, this trial. Every Friday morning in the Nazi concentration camp, uh, they were humiliated by medical inspections. They had to stand naked in a line. And Corrie and her sister, they were Christians, and this is how they were helped. Uh, while we were waiting, shivering, uh, the Bible leapt into life for me. He hung naked on the cross. I had not known, I had not thought. The paintings uh, showed at least uh, a scrap of cloth, but this, I suddenly knew, was the respect and reverence of the artist. But oh, uh, on that other Friday morning, not this Friday morning when I'm standing naked in the queue, but on that good Friday morning, there had been no reverence. Uh, I leaned toward my sister ahead of me in the line, and I just said, they took his clothes too. And she said, oh, Corrie, I never thanked him. Can you thank him? I love you, Jesus, for the beating and the bruising that you bore for me. Thank you for the blood on your forehead, the spits on your face, and the undying love in your hearts. It lightens the load of suffering when you look to him. Let me end on an Afro-American spiritual note. They crucified my Lord, and he never said a mumble in word. They crucified my Lord, and he never said... A mumbling word, not a word, not a word, not a word. For his name's sake. Uh, let us now sing uh, that hymn that I've quoted from Man of Sorrows. What a name for the spotless Son of God who came ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah. Uh, it's a recurring theme in the hymn, What a Saviour. We'll stand to sing.
Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all now and forever. Amen.